Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome along to a rather different midweek motorsport. Uh, as you will know if you were listening live, uh, we have had some technical issues. However, that will not stop us. We are going to crack on this evening. Uh, we'll uh, quickly rattle through uh, one or two of your uh, tweets to at Spectretainment. Kevin Payne listening in tonight. Also Daniel Summersgill, or at least he's not, but he'd be listening into this now uh, Neil Gardner is catching up on the podcast so hello Neil hello to uh, Johannes Guaglita looking forward to the show had Rind survived he'd eventually run all of F1 together with uh, Bernard Charles Eccleston yes I think you're absolutely right hello to Paul Dunk uh, as well and to Carol Brink among many others uh, with massive apologies uh, that just as we were going live things uh, were going wrong, uh, completely outside of anybody's control here. So let's head to our big story uh, this week. Actually, before we do that, I, I have got some sad news, and we'll we'll start with a little bit of sad news uh, this evening, and that's someone that Shea Adam, who joins us on the line, and I both know. Uh, Bruce Flanders has died. Uh, Bruce, uh, a massive character, Shea, at the Long Beach Grand Prix. Served as the announcer there for 42 years. Yeah, very much so. The voice of the Long Beach Grand Prix. It's going to be so weird and different to go back to those streets, uh, hopefully someday soon. But to know that his dulcet tones won't be rattling around from the PA speakers, that it just feels a little bit wrong. He was truly a, a part of that whole event, and he will be missed. Larger-than-life character who'd been battling with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. He made it to 75 a Vietnam War veteran. He was a racer as well, of course, and set a speed record at Bonneville Salt Flats uh, at 28, and he became the fastest man on a production motorcycle uh, in back in those days at 141.703 miles an hour. That record stood for seven years and rightly awarded a medallion for the Motorsport Walk of Fame in Long Beach uh, in 20. 20- 16. He refused to allow his disease to define him. He came to the track uh, and even though sometimes he had to have his oxygen bottle with him and uh, take in some oxygen in a cannula, he refused to stop uh, doing his work because that was the sort of guy that Bruce was. We uh, mourn his passing. We 
add our condolences to the many that have gone to his friends, uh, many friends in the paddock, and of course his family. Uh, may he rest in peace and may his memory be a blessing. Bruce Flanders, who died uh, this week. Let's head on to our top story this week, and we've got uh, Nick Damon uh, with us to talk uh, about, first of all, uh, about uh, Motor GP. Yes. Yes. Um, Shea Adam will stay with us for a little while as well. Um, uh, Two of the most violent and scary accidents that I've ever seen in a single weekend, never mind that they both happened in the same weekend. Both times uh, we were extremely fortunate and the people were extremely fortunate not to be more badly hurt. That included the two... Uh, the, the 200 mile an hour accident in MotoGP, um, which involved Johan Zarco uh, just sliding out through the kink that's turned to, and then two bikes basically going on a magical mystery tour, uh, just missing Maverick Vinales and, uh, and uh, Valentino Rossi, uh, potentially causing havoc down at the hairpin, which I I don't even think what would have happened if the motorcycle had gone over the top of the air fence and into where the marshals and the photographers and the camera operators were. Uh, we're expecting to hear something from MotoGP. I, I'm not going to dwell on it more than what I've said there, Nick, but there's been an awful lot of people talking about it as if they know exactly what's going on, and I don't think that's the situation was it just a free accident? Um, well, that's a really good question. I think I think those sort of accidents are, are, are what they are. No one intends to certainly in the um, in the Moto Two. The, you don't want to low side the, the high side of the bike coming out the first corner, leave it stranded across and you know over the top of a brow. Was, People can't you know, see. That could happen that. anywhere. That could happen, happen anywhere. anywhere. But, no, there's a lot. But, but you know, the, the the problem with the accident coming into turn three is that when the bike is carried on going, the, the direction of travel just takes you very much into the path of the vehicles that carry on going. As you go through that little tiny, best part, not even a kinky, it's just like a minor swerve, yeah, you're doing 190 miles an hour plus, and you know, there's a huge sitting effect. If people misjudge things, it goes wrong very, very quickly. Now, you know, there's people been saying it's because people are too aggressive. People are saying it's because it's the, you know, the, the fact that there are elements of the Red Bull ring that are unsafe. I, I think, you know, my feeling is that, you know, there, we're on the edge of a massive accident in MotoGP about 14 times a lap normally. Um, but, you know, that one was, was you know, people were pointing fingers of blame. Just, just to me, it was a combination of things that ended up being spectacular and frightening, but but in the end, just so much not what they could have been. You know, you, you first of all you say, you know, someone was watching over uh, Vinales and Rossi; they weren't hit a hundred miles now by a hundred and fifty kilogram bike, which would have been very, very serious. And the two guys who fell off. You know, the, it was a broken wrist and some burns between the two of them, and that's mm. that. That just shows you how good airbag suits are, and and how good the the trackside safety. So the fact that you got runoff areas and you can slide, and not hit heavy things. Because obviously, you know, most most rider fatalities, obviously, unlike car fatalities, are actually caused by the rider hitting something solid when he's fallen off the bike. You know, and it's and, you know, it's an improvement of the environs around the track that has, has improved motorcycle safety so much and why of course road racing is still so dangerous um because you can't take all the lampposts and all the curbs away 
but yeah, I mean, I think it was a very spectacular accident, a very uh, high energy accident, and perhaps it, it it does, as some of the more elder statesmen say, highlight a problem of slightly over aggressive riding, you know, within the pack of MotoGP. But it's a hard thing to solve because you know, as we've seen in other, you, know, you need one person to make a misjudgment: is that being over uh, over ambitious, over aggressive, or just fucking up? Uh, as far I'm, I'm not going to second guess anybody. Um... Uh, and it may or may not have a an effect on what happens because they're back at the same uh, weekend, uh, the same uh, venue rather, this weekend. And I, I'm not going to speculate on that. Um, had it not been for that, the story of the weekend would be an Andrea Davizioso on so many different levels Uh, the breakdown of negotiations between him and his management and Ducati the final throws of the divorce and then he goes out and wins the race on Sunday of course he does yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, um, our our erstwhile, I call it our motorcycle college, but really our old mate Declan um, pointed us both in the direction of the free documentary on Red Bull TV called um, Undaunted, which follows uh, Davizioso's season last year. Shouldn't that have been called Unwanted? Well, yes, which was full of highs and lows, winning a couple of races, being just very unlucky in a couple of races, hitting other people's accidents, and and also the ups and downs of, of trying to compete against Mark Marquez, which is not an easy thing to do anyway. Um, and it was an, it's a fascinating insight. I mean, I, if you have any interest in motorsport, not motorcycle, watch that, because it's one of the most revealing documentaries I've seen. First of all, I'm now a massive Andrea fan, despite still having issues with his surname. Um, but... Um, you know, he's incredibly introspective. And you kind of think this man is actually too introspective to be a MotoGP rider. Um, and But the support the support he gets from Ducati, or got from Ducati last year, when for several rounds he was actually definitely in with a chance, was verging on zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and you then kind of think, well, hang on, they managed to, uh, you know, lose Casey Stoner after one of the World Championship, f- kept employing these high-rated dri- riders who couldn't ride the bike, um, and when they weren't doing well, they'd slag them off in the press. And then you know, they, they might come good. Like Lorenzo was, was massively insulted in the press. Then suddenly started winning, but the damage was done. And, and, and Ducati appeared to be unable to accept that the issue is the bike. And all they want to do is just is, is blame the rider or swap riders or try and pl- pitch riders against each other. Um, you know, which is not a way to, to, to win anything, really. So the, you know, it was a massive up yours from... Uh, Andrea at the weekend. He's now into second place in the championship, 11 points behind uh, Fabio Quattararo, who had a pretty bad weekend, uh, and then they, they're back there next week. So, sorry, this weekend. So he is now very much a, a, a man in uh, in with a chance of the world championship, and it could well be his parting gift will be effectively to take the championship. Well, perhaps not anywhere else. Perhaps take it into a sabbatical or retirement. Hmm. Um, I enjoyed right. Both of the accidents scared me. Uh, the Motor 2 race, uh, particularly, you see that and you think, well, you know, there's nothing you can do to stop that. The second one was just, it got worse every time it was replayed, and I've seen some stills of that now. Um, they are a different breed. They are absolutely a different breed. What we shouldn't let uh, that take away from, a very, very interesting race, particularly in Motor GP, on the Sunday, but it has been overshadowed, Nick. Yeah, I think it's one of those um, spectacular accidents, spectacular accidents, which make the mainstream news channels. Don't they? It makes the mainstream mm. as, as you know, it doesn't it doesn't really promote motorsport or motorcycling, but it's look at the lucky. Yeah, and it, obviously it's even more 
a totemic because the, the person who avoided being hit by the motorcycle is is still by far the most famous bike rider probably of all time actually Valentino Rossi I think he's probably you know even more famous than the the, the, the names of law uh, Agustin and Howard across everybody you know across the, the consciousness of the whole world um so it was great it was a great news where thing. it didn't really help and I think the, the, the yeah they're saying all this and that and people are saying all oh, you know the, the, the I, I, I can't remember which right it was I thought the red ball ring was dangerous first time I tested there I, I don't see how it's how it's particularly dangerous. It's got there's, there's areas of every single track where if you have an accident, you will you will carry on spearing on. The chance will take someone out of the next corner. Yeah. There are very high speed elements, and so, yeah, it, it does come down to it. There isn't, there, and, and it's something which, yeah, we 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 lost a little bit in motor racing with four wheels. In in that the competitors need to take care of each other as well as taking care of business as such. You know, it's very evident in. You know, racing in the 60s and 70s people wouldn't go for for, for, for ridiculous moves because they knew there was a very good chance that even if it came off they could injure the person they were trying to overtake and if not themselves but as we now see you know the invincibility spreading from four wheels to two with as we said with the airbag suits where you get up and walk away slightly inconvenienced from a 190 mile accident you know you get that kind of i am invincible feeling and that's when you stop caring about your fellow competitors and perhaps take things too far so that there does need to be some introspection by the riders, but I don't think one very photogenic accident changed anything massively. I think this, be, this general feeling I can fall off with impunity has been growing um, and has finally caught out the multiple term Marquez. And also, you kind of feel eventually you're just building on you're building on injuries, on building on injuries, and building on injuries. And this is the, this is the thing. So, yeah, perhaps it might be a, a, an interesting point or a watershed. I personally feel. But by the time we win two weeks, three weeks' time, we've moved on to somewhere else. It'll be forgotten, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. Anything else that came out of the weekend? A lot of speculation, of course, of where Davizioso might go. Um, there's potentially a spot at Aprilia, but does he really want to go there? Uh, can he? F- I mean, there was talk about him going to World Superbike, and, and one or two people said, yeah, but would he really go to World Superbike, other people have, have gone there to stay riding and he doesn't want to have a, a year out. No, I mean, I think there's, there's always... The, I can't see him wanting to ride for a period unless he has the, an absolutely stellar paycheck mm. um, because they're not really... Everyone thought they were going to start doing decent things this year. It just never materialised after pre-season testing. I'm pretty sure if there was a slot at KTM, he'd be interested in, in picking it up. I'm not, you know, mm. they, they, they Apparently, they're full, but you know, these things can get moved around. Because uh, that's now a winning bike um, in the right. In fact, in fact, it was it one two weeks ago. It was in a much better chance until the best two riders took themselves out in the mutual accident um, when uh, uh, Paul Espargaro um, hit uh, Oliveira. Wasn't it? They hit Oliveira yeah, yeah. hit Espargaro, so they took themselves out, and they were both doing what well, they they were both being in the top five or six. So that hadn't happened. So yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, there are options, um, but you know. Does Dobby want to carry on? Does he want to, he want to you know, ride off into the distance? I'm not sure. But I would absolutely recommend that everybody, because I can do this because it's free, uh, just puts an undaunted Andrea Dovizioso into a popular search engine. You'll find up will come the Red Bull um, TV, and it's absolutely free to watch. And it's a, a 56 minutes you won't regret investing in. Okay, next day with us, coming up later on in the show. Um, I won't give times at the moment, because as this is rather a different show... Nick will be back later with his Formula One team by team as we look back at the Spanish 
Grand Prix, we've also, and I, and I sort of didn't do at the top of the show, at the start of the show, what's in the show tonight. Uh, with a bit of luck, we'll still be able to get David Tremaine on the phone from the northeast of England uh, to talk about uh, Yacht and Rint. It's coming up, believe it or not, to 50 years since Yacht and Rint was killed at Monza. And 10 years ago, David Tremaine uh, wrote a superb biography of the Austrian world champion, posthumous world champion, uh, the uncrowned king of Formula One. Uh, we'll speak with him uh, later on in this show. Um, I'm carefully looking at the time to make sure that we get David in on time. Before we do that, let's go to uh, Shea Adam. Oh, and uh, we'll have some other bits and pieces as well. And by the way, thank you for all the nice things you're seeing on uh, at Specutainment at the moment, uh, given our technical issues with the live show. Shea Adam is still with us. A, a quick couple of words with you, Shea, about last weekend, because we had stock cars at Daytona, uh, but not on the Oval at the weekend. And particular interest was the Saturday race for Xfinity, uh, which did have a little bit of a rain delay. Uh, and Earl Bamber became Larry at the weekend. I'm sticking with that. I think it works. Explain. Is, that, is that because he might have wound up almost upside down at yes. some point? So you would have to invert his name for that. So we, we actually could have Larry and Larry Ray driving together. Um, it was L-R-A-E, quite, yes, that's right. Yeah, it was uh, quite the debut for Earl, who had honestly been working on this ride for about 10 years with Richard Childress Racing. Um, he and his his dad has a farm down in New Zealand and Richard Childress came down a long time ago to go hunting down there actually with his family. And basically Earl had to prove his worthiness to drive one of Richard's cars about eight years ago. Um, it's a long story, but it was a childhood dream come true for Bambi getting the opportunity to drive in the Xfinity series. He definitely made his mark. Uh, the track conditions were a little bit mixed at the start of the race. Some teams went on to wet tires when it really wasn't wet enough for wets. But Bambi, by the end of the first stint, I think he had gone from 21st to 5th or 6th. Um, he didn't really figure out how to do the pit stops. That was the big um, sore spot, I'll say, for his drive. But then he learned about curb hopping. And uh, it was actually kind of funny because AJ Allmendinger was giving him some grief on an IMSA conference call the other day saying that it's a lot faster if you don't try to go over the curbs and uh, ultimately wind up in the tires. So it was a good debut. It was a very strong run for Earl coming up through the field and getting some wheel-to-wheel racing. Ultimately, it did end with a fairly broken race car though but he's looking forward to getting back into his Porsche at VAR this weekend and uh, Jordan Taylor wasn't involved but he was involved how did that work so Jordan wasn't driving but he did go up the simulator up in Charlotte and spend quite some time with three of the Hendricks drivers that would be uh, Alex Bowman and quite honestly most importantly uh, William Byron and most importantly Chase Elliott who wound up winning the race on Sunday, the cup race. And he actually thanked Jordan for his input in his victory speech, saying that Jordan really made a big difference teaching him how to go around this track, that none of them, none of the three of them, 
had ever driven on before because none of them have 24 hours of Daytona experience. Jimmy Johnson had a really good run, their other teammate, but he, of course, has done the 24 hours of Daytona quite a few times. And just to drop a little hint of Jimmy Johnson news, uh, he's very interested in continuing this IndyCar foray that he's begun, John. He tested one of Chip Ganassi's race cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the road course a couple weeks back and said today that he would be interested in running, well, 12, 13, who knows how many IndyCar races next year. But clearly, the seven-time champion in NASCAR is not done racing. He's just done with the stock cars. Yeah. Sounds uh, like there's still some to come there. You're listening to a special Midweek Motorsport. Uh, we'll also have our Indy 500 preview for you as well. Shea Adam will be staying on. Jeremy Shaw will be joining us. Watch out for that uh, on the podcast feed as well. We'll get that up as soon as possible. Right now, we're going to go back uh, to last weekend and some of the uh, live sport that we covered uh, and our VCO eSports Victory Lane interview. It was the seventh round of the Digital Nürburgring Endurance Series powered by VCO, the Nemex three hours at the Nürburgring on Saturday. It's another close run battle and took a lot of speed and tactics to get to the front. For much of the race, looked like the BMW Bank team were on course to get their third win of the season. After starting the race from pole position, they pulled away from their rivals early on. But... A daring two-stop strategy in their virtual Mercedes-AMG GT3 gave the team Heusingveld trio of Adam Christodoulou, Matt Thorger, Hutzfeld and Jan Sentowski their first win at the Green Hell. Now, the team's direct rivals all pitted three times, but the number 101 managed without an extra stop in that final stint. Sentowski somehow managing a fast but frugal eight-lap stint and staying out of the pit. That gained the trio crucial seconds on the team BMW bank car and they crossed the finish line six and a half seconds ahead after 22 laps. Adam Christodoulou qualified the car and started fourth on the grid after the race. He told me how the race evolved. The, the start of the race went pretty well. I think for some reason P3 didn't start next to us so I basically got straight into a third place. I thought about going for second but in the end, obviously, the guys were faster than me because they had qualified me. So I just thought, well, if I can stick with them for the first few laps, get them to drag me along and let's just see where we are. But uh, in the end, uh, Yen and Matt just put in blistering times and, uh, and we were just fuel saving. And we were calculating it. I've got, it, I've got each lap on my, on my phone of how much fuel we needed to save uh, on each lap just to get us to the end. And then the next question was, are we going to... Uh, we even going to make it to the end of the, uh, the race. So it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely touch and go all the way through. During the first few laps, basically, uh, we believe you can only do the, the longer strategy in the second or third stint because you've also got to do the warm-up from where we grid to the start. So, of course, you end up using another litre of fuel there. And it was just one of those that we just tried to do it as efficient as we can and of course, we, we also knew that each time you do a pit stop, you've got to come in and do a full set of tyres, which takes 27 seconds. So, um, yeah, in the end, it was all down to the fuel saving that Jan did right at the end. And uh, the, the second place BMW got within three seconds, and then they just seemed to get hammered by traffic three laps in a row. And that just opened it up. And uh, we, uh, yeah, it was really surprising. But there's some serious fuel saving going on there. Like, even, even during my stint, I just thought, right, 
but just stay behind because I, I wasn't sure if I was quick enough to get ahead and to pull a gap. So I just thought, well, maybe he's dragging me along. And in the end, I think we got it by uh, just a few few seconds. I think we got it by maybe four or five seconds, which yeah. I could feel <laughs> the nerves getting to me. When did you realise that Jan was going to have to do a, a phenomenal piece of fuel saving? And how close was it at the end on that eighth lap? Well, basically, we, we crossed the line uh, with 1.1 litres left. With this, basically, once you get to 0.3, it almost it, it basically stops. So uh, I think, basically, turn the ignition off going across the line just to make sure that we could get back to the pits. Because that's the other thing. You need to make it back to the pits. So that's why the in-lap was quite painfully slow. But uh, I suppose it also gave us time to enjoy it as well. When do we see you in a, a, in a full metal car again? Uh, I am back at the Nürburgring next uh, in two weeks' time. So basically, um, yeah, a week on Friday, I'll be there for the next uh, NLS race, uh, back with the HRT boys. And so hopefully we can have a repeat of uh, of our last race. The last race was a double header, and we managed to win both races somehow in oh, the so end. So. And so, uh, so hopefully we can do that and get prepped for uh, the Nürburgring 24 hours. And of course, we'll be covering the next round of the NLS, the full metal version that Adam was talking about here in Sound and Vision on Radio Show Limited. Let's go back to the weekend and the three-hour race that was the seventh round of the DNLS powered by VCO was the Nemex three hours. And I'm delighted to say that uh, joining me now on the telephone from Germany, uh, a gentleman, and I'll use that word properly because he is very much a gentleman who I've known for quite a long time. Started his motorsport career at Champion Motorsport, Toyota Gazoo Racing, and uh, most latterly, and where I got to know him best, as a customer support engineer uh, at Audi Sport USA. Uh, Welcome to Midweek Motorsport, Matthias Berghoff. Uh, Matthias, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, thank you, John. I'm very fine and hope you as well. Yes, we are. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about the involvement of Nemex into digital racing. You're a, a real-world company. Nemex has been around for a long time, got a fabulous history of four decades or so in the sport. Why why involve yourselves with digital racing right now? Uh, for us, it's pretty obvious that... Um, Zim racing is getting more and more interesting and more and more, and more relevant. And um, besides the current corona situation, it was always a thing where we were working on and were interested in. And uh, due to the corona situation where everybody was more or less also pushed into the direction of, of Zim racing, we uh, started with our own little product line, which we are producing right now and starting with... Um, supporting simulators, uh, simulator companies, sorry, and uh, also um, try to selling the parts. So um, going into the real world, the connection between the NLS and the DNLS, where we are very well known uh, with our track support and so on, uh, it was a logical step for us to go into the world of Zim racing in this case. People may not know Nemex. Matthias, so tell the listeners exactly what you did, because you're effectively a support company that is is very well known and has been for a, a long time in, in German motor racing in particular. Yes, um, like you said, nearly four decades. So 
uh, our job is to support the teams on and off track. So we are at the track when they're racing with our support truck and engineers uh, to support directly when they're when the action is on. So um, this is the first thing. The other thing is during the events, doing the preparation with the teams, support them with the parts, with uh, technical advice, uh, with some ed- engineering, of course, and be able um, to support with the, the best possible possible parts package they can get. And uh, if they don't get us on the hotline, they can, of course, go online and check this. So we had just announced a new uh, state-of-the-art webshop to give our customers the chance uh, for a 24-7 service package from Nemex. I'm on the website now, nemex.com. That's N-I-M-E-X.com. Everything from drink systems to dampers to springs, all of that stuff that clearly people sometimes need when they go racing, things go wrong. We understand that. Your web shop, your site, is being updated all the time, and there's nothing there that's not in stock. So it's real time, isn't it? Correct. This is uh, what I mean with state of the art in this case. So the shop is always live inventory for the customers, and also the the real uh, delivery times, which are currently uh, valid for the parts. So the the customer need, knows directly where we are where he can get the best possible parts and which parts are available at the moment. Yeah, it's all life. Who are you aiming that at? Uh, is this for privateer races? Do uh, Nemex have a typical customer? Uh, yes or no. So the typical customer is, is a racer. It's, that's for sure. Um, we are supporting nearly everybody in the business. So we have customers which are on the amateur base, or doing just track days and not really racing, but there are still people which following our passion. This is for sure. Um, and we're going up the ladder up to the, the OEMs directly. So we're dealing with the factories directly. We're dealing with the pro teams. And this is not stopping at the GT level. So we're going up that. It's like um, BTM, of course. We're going up to WEC. Um, so everything what is at the moment highest level uh, is coming to us as well so it's not just the the base which is the most important of course it's going up to the to the pro level um where i was ba- uh, where i was based on where i worked in the last let's say 15 years of course yeah yeah indeed and with quite a lot of success uh, i know i know you won't say that because you're too modest um Parts are one thing, but that's only part, if you pardon the pun, of the story because you're offering engineering advice now. What form does that take? Is that data collection? Is it uh, interpretation? Is it literally spring and damper rates? Uh, What we don't do on purpose is we don't send an engineer to the teams um, because this is, for me and for us, a conflict of interest so i cannot support one customer better than the other so um the engineering point from us is if let's say if the if the standard sales is not working anymore it's not enough and you need more technical input yes we can help you off track and we can help you finding the right setup the right compounds the right components of course we can do this and we have a look for your data. We check the 
the better info, the more detailed information, let's say it this way, um, than we normally do in our standard business. But we don't do, and I personally don't do the direct and engineering on the car anymore because, like I said at the beginning, it's definitely a conflict of interest here. Thank you for the support of the uh, VCO-powered DNLS. And I, I suppose, well, next time that we'll see you at the Nürburgring, you'll be there for real, uh, supporting your, your customers. Uh, and we wish you the best in, in getting back to work, Matthias. Nice to speak to you again. Thank you very much, John. Uh, have a nice evening. Midweek Motorsport. And if you thought that hour was packed with insights and comments, wait till you hear what's next. So still to come on this special midweek motorsport, a bit different as well, but I have managed to dig this shingle out, so we're getting there, we're getting there. Shea and Nick will be back with us. Nick's got his team by team, of course, of the Spanish Grand Prix, and we'll be taking that apart as well and talking about it. And there's something to do with the supersonic aircraft as well this week, and 10 teams want to be in it, or something. I'm not entirely certain how that works. But next, uh, here on Midweek Motorsport, if the technology is still with us, we'll go for a big interview as the actual time here is near enough the right time for our big interview. And coming up, uh, one of my favourite journalists, love reading what he writes. It's David Tremaine. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. Just after nine o'clock on a Wednesday. And the big interview, as we've been promising uh, this week, is in advance of a rather sad anniversary coming up on the 5th of September. 1970 it was when Jochen Rint lost his life. Uh, that was a dark day in motor racing. About ten, In fact, ten years ago this year, which I'm shocked at, David Tremaine wrote a fantastic book about Jochen Rint, the uncrowned king of Formula One. And I'm delighted to say that DT joins me now. First of all, David, I can't believe it's 10 years since that book first came out. Yeah, me too, John. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, how these things happen? But then I think in, in any form of racing, you always tend to minimise your memories of time. Tell me about how the book came about in the first place. We'll get to Jochen, his character... And and the actual putting together of the book because it's 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 an extraordinary thing and I'll explain why I say that to the listeners in a moment. Why did you want to do that book in the first place? Well, I'd done the Lost Generation, which was um, Roger Williamson, Tony Bryce, and Tom Price, which is kind of something I'd always promised myself I would write, and Mark Hughes what was then Haynes Publishing. I'm pretty sure it was Mark suggested, how about Jochen? And you sort of think, hmm, that's an interesting idea. And I didn't know an awful lot about Jochen in the way I did those three. So I really liked the idea, what what appealed most. The idea of the uncrowned king, of course, he was crowned because he was world champion, but he never lived to be crowned, which I think is so tragic. And I, I just... The more I dug into it, the more I looked into him. Jochen, when I was a kid, was somebody I looked at thinking he's quite arrogant and aloof and blah, blah. Some people still say that he was, but I actually found him to be a really warm character, somebody that I 
I liked more and more as I researched him. The way you put the book together is very, it's very important that we talk about that because you've blended together a huge amount of, of material. Uh, interviews that you did yourself, research from stuff that, that was done contemporaneously when Jochen was still alive, and the feeling, uh, race reports as well, and, and the feeling I get almost at times in the book, David, is that it's like eavesdropping on a conversation round a table of friends talking about someone in a pub. And, and I wonder if that was the sort of idea that you were looking for, because it's it's not the standard biography in its in its format by any any stretch of the imagination. I kind of hope, without sounding arrogant, that it is my kind of standard autobiography. I suppose because I grew up reading autobiographies of um, race drivers, and the style in the say, 50s or 60s, when those kind of books were written, wasn't really to be particularly revealing, and I wanted to get to the real character of the guy. Um, The only thing I'd ever read that really gave me a good insight to that, I felt, apart from um, some magazine interviews, was Heinz Brüller's book. And bless him, Heinz is a good friend of mine, and he's a fantastic guy, and he wrote that book very, very quickly. And I talked to Heinz a lot about it. And Heinz is like Graham Gould with Jim Clark. Um, some people could sort of, you know, pull their arms in and say, well, that's my kind of stuff. I, I, Jim Clark's my man or Jochen Rinse, my, my mate, and not share. And both of those were so open and mm. um, sharing with all their information that it was quite extraordinary. And both... Um, Heinz certainly was one of the keys to doing the book, um, information-wise. Nick Gouzet, who um, worked for Penske, but had also worked with Jochen in Formula 2 when he was at Brabham. People like that are such a mine of information because they work with the guys. Frank Williams, too. You know, Frank loved Jochen. He absolutely adored him. So to be able to go and talk to them afresh about what they thought of somebody is like... You know, you're getting fresh information, you're getting first-hand stuff, and hopefully stuff that people haven't read before. I mean, I didn't know, even when I when I started the book, I didn't actually know that Jochen had a, a sort of stepbrother, mm. Uwe. And uh, I got in touch with Uwe, thank God, who was absolutely brilliant and told me lots of stuff that I needed to know about the demise of Jochen's parents in the bombing raids on Hamburg and growing up together with him and his character. Obviously, I talked to Nina. Jackie, of course, Stuart was great friends with Jochen. Again, that's funny, isn't it? Because you grow up as a kid, and I remember seeing pictures of Jackie and Emerson sort of side profile staring at each other. And to find out that they were friends and that Jackie and, and Jochen were friends, when I was a kid, I thought, well, that's odd. How can they be friends? They're rivals. Mm. But they had this camaraderie and this friendship. And to be honest, if Jackie, if Jackie Stewart thought Jochen was a good bloke, that's more than enough for me. You touched on something there, David, that I think is very interesting, and and it runs runs throughout the book. That it it, it seemed in it, you take the reader in some ways on a voyage of discovery, which I really like about this. 
you said there that a lot of people saw an arrogance in Jock and Rint, and some people never changed from that. But as you as you take us through the book, you give us either mitigation or a, a complete 180 view on that and, and how he treats certain people. And, and you've gone into the detail of that, met the people who are still a, a, alive, who who could give you that insight. Was, was that... Was that a surprise to you and as much of, of a discovery as, as we feel it is reading the book? In a way, yeah. I mean, Ron Dennis, Ron worked on Jochen's car and Ron still thinks Jochen was very arrogant, which in some ways he was. Yeah, he could be like at the German Grand Prix when he was late getting to the grid. I was thinking about this. I wonder if Lewis was sort of late on the grid if he said they'll ever dare start it without me, because that's what Jochen said in Germany. And, of course, the story with Dennis Jenkins, and I think I I just don't understand why Jenks took against Jochen, unless Jochen didn't sort of pray at the altar of Jenkins, and I can't imagine why Jenks didn't rate him. It would be, you know, as if I turned around and said, well, Max Verstappen's no good, Mm. or Charles Leclerc, forget it, kind of thing. Jochen was obviously such an incredibly special driver that I didn't understand that. So Jochen would react very badly with people like that that he didn't like and he could be quite peremptory about it and you know if Jenks came into a conversation Jochen would just blank him so yeah he could in that sense but there was this other side of Jochen the funny playful friendly side I mean I talked a lot to Bernie about it it was interesting Bernie and I he'd he'd always said that he would do the interview but then time came when we needed to do it and it was in the days when China was still one of the later races rather than early in the season. I just said, look, can we really do it now? And he went, right, come on. And we went and locked ourselves in a room in an office in China at the circuit. Both put our phones away from us and we talked for like an hour and a half. And we were both a bit tearful at the end of it. Um, We talked about Pedro as well. You know, Bernie was not a guy who suffered fools, and he and Jochen just got on perfectly. Again, Jochen was hugely arrogant with Pedro Rodriguez yes. because yes. Pedro was good. And he hated Pedro, and he hated the fact that Pedro won in South Africa, even though it was a lucky win. And if they were playing backgammon, he didn't like it if Pedro won. He didn't get on with Salvadori either, which is a bit odd. But um, Jochen was a very clever judge of character. And Ron started his F1 career at Monaco in 66. And by the third race of the year, so it was Monaco, Spa and France. By France, John Surtees had joined Mm. Cooper. In the middle of the season after the falling out with with Ferrari, of course, yeah. Yeah, so Jochen says, I want that guy to be chief mechanic on my car, meaning Ron. Because Ron had this completely different standard of um, pre- preparing cars, and Jochen was savvy enough to see that. That And that was completely against protocol at, at, in the team at the time, because Ron was not the lowest of the law, but he was very, very junior. He was the kid. He was the kid, and, you know, there were people in the factory were jealous that Salvadori had chosen the kid to join the F1 team. But, um, you know, Jochen was savvy enough to see how good Ron was, and actually Ron followed him to Brabham. Mm. Mm. So, got this kind of dichotomy, but I think the basic 
story is Joachim was a pretty decent bloke, um, unless you annoyed him if you got on the wrong side of him. And you know, you can probably say that about a, a lot of people, I think. You mentioned Bernie Eccleston there, David, and and, and Bernie was, was quite a bit older uh, than than Jochen. You wouldn't say he was a contemporary, but in some ways Jochen, uh, having had a very wild time in his youth, all of a sudden had an old soul uh, and, and and Bernie and, and Jochen got on magnificently well. Yeah, it's funny because Bernie actually mentioned that, that there was an age difference. He said it never even came up. It was not a factor. You know, they were both sharp, savvy guys, good at business, good at seeing the main chance. And, you know, they were kindred spirits. Mm. And they had this fantastic relationship and undoubtedly would have gone into business, not just the race team um, that Roy Winkleman used to run for them, but they would have um, they would have gone into business together. And, you know, I, I like to think of Jochen running Formula One with Bernie from the 70s onwards. That would have been a very powerful combination. We'll never know, of course, because of the uh, the tragic events of, of of Monza. The the thought that that Jochen that that would have potentially been Jochen's final season. You wear that up in in the book as well, and there's there's evidence for 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 both sides of of that argument. I'm convinced he would have raced at least another year because. Let's just say in 71, if it had been Jochen and not a sort of um, rookie Emerson and Rainer Vissel driving the cars, I think the car would have been quicker and more competitive than it was in 71. And of course, 72, look at it. And 73, look what it did. I don't think Jochen would have been able to give that up. Mm. Plus, as world champion, he would have had to carry on to maximise his business opportunities. Um, I think the fascinating thing was Roy Winkleman. There's another guy. I was really, really pleased to get hold of him because Roy Winkleman, I've never even seen a photograph of Roy. That's how sort of mysterious the guy was. And he he worked in counterintelligence and all that sort of stuff. And I had some fantastic conversations with him. Really, really interesting guy. Um, He was adamant that Jochen had talked to him about going NASCAR. And if, if Roy said that, I had to take um, give credibility to his opinion on it. But when Jochen drove, shared a NASCAR with Jimmy at Rockingham in 67, they both thought it was a piece of crap. Uh, they both thought it was like a tank. And it wasn't the one they drove wasn't particularly good. But I couldn't see Jochen giving up F1 to go NASCAR. I just can't see that. But NASCAR wasn't the him off that it is now either at that point uh, by no means no, was mean, it what it is now couldn't have made a fantastic living from it I mean you know Richard Petty and people like that did but it wasn't like one of those places you automatically thought of going to I mean if you were going to go anywhere you go to Indy yeah which is where, where Jochen went in what 67 and 68 didn't like the place at all but you know you look at the amount of money you could make at Indy they all went there with dollar bills in their eyes mm. and they all had to go because you've been an idiot not to. You could earn so much more in 500 miles than you could in a whole season winning <laughs> the world championship in F1 in the mid-60s. It will surprise no one to uh, to hear that I was I consumed the chapter about Jochen's Le Mans win um, and, and read it several times. 
it's such a cool story. You know, he goes there in 64 with M-A-R-T and Kinetti, who's so disorganized, <laughs> and asks Jabby Cromback. You know, he makes an entry, doesn't know who's going to drive, gets Jabby Cromback, who, for those who don't know, was the doyen of journalists, but multifaceted. You know, did racing, team management, was an FIA steward, you name it. Jabby did it. Jabby suggested him because he was talking to Rolf Markle, who was a good mate of Jochen's, and he said, yeah, Jochen will do it. So in 64, um, Jochen goes to Le Mans. He, he runs the car in practice, but David Piper's in it when it breaks and it bursts his oil filter in the first hour or whatever, and they're out. But the next year, Kinetti remembers, yeah, yeah, I, I want that kid. But again, typically he's disorganized. So right at the last minute, he calls Jochen and says, do you want to do Le Mans? Jochen gets the last seat on the last plane, gets there, qualifies the car. To his delight, it's number 21, which is a special number for him, the number he had on one of his cars when he first won a race and then when he won Crystal Palace F2. So he can't believe it. And then they he drives with Marston Gregory. I mean, it's a miracle that Marston didn't stuff the car in, in quali. And then they're, they're eighth in the first, after the first hour. So you've got all these big Ford seven liters and the 4.7s and everything else. And then all the 330 LM Ferraris and everything else. And there is some scratty old 250 LM, but they're running eighth in the first hour. Then they get this problem with the starter motor and lose three laps. Then it goes on to six cylinders. And there's that lovely story about they changed the distributor. They all think Marston's damaged the engine by over revving and it turns out in the end it's the condenser that's at fault so they lose like 10 laps and then um Jochen's disappeared he's in his civvies and he's he would have gone but he's blocked in in the paddock and Marston begs him and you know come on we can let's just you know everyone else is falling out let's just drive flat out and see what happens so they do and they drive flat out on the basis that let's just drive this thing until it breaks and I think the judgment is perfect because they, they start 18th after all the delays and they're leading by like 4.50 in the morning. And then it's between them and the Ikiri National Belt car of Pierre Dumais and Taf Gosselin. And then they're sort of back and forth between them during pit stop until the Belgian car has a puncture. And it's on Dunlop's. And, of course, Kinetti hasn't arranged any tyres when he gets to Le Mans. He sort of sees Leo Mel and says, have you got any? And Mel says, we've got nothing in that size, you know, because it's an old car. This is good, or, yeah, of oh, course, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, a set of wets. I've got a set of wets, if, if they're any good. So they're narrow wets and everything else. Jochen and Marston love the car on them. They think it's really good. So, you know, the only set of tyres Goodyear's got in the whole place that will work on that car they end up with. And they end up winning the race, which, you know, flat out to the finish. I remember Alan Henry writing a story on it, and that's that's the title he chose, and it's perfect. And then the, um, you know, so they win, and Jochen lets Marston take the last stint because Marston's been trying to win Le Mans for so long. And, um, you know, he babies it, actually, nursemaids it for a change instead of jumping out of it before it crashes like he often did and gets it to the line, and they win. Last win for Ferrari. Mm -hmm. 
um, historically. And then literally the mechanic drives it to the paddock and the diff seizes because the brakes have been juddering, the diff's been grumbling for like 12 hours. And literally it breaks as he goes to the paddock. And I just think, you know, Barry Gill met Jochen afterwards. And, you know, this this to me tells you what Jochen was really like, because instead of just buzzing off, he saw Barry and yelled at him and just sat down and talked to him. Yeah. And as Barry said, it was almost like he was still trying to convince himself he just won the biggest race. Uh, that story. And of course, what Jochen loved about it was it put his value up. Yes. So he was going to get more money from potential sponsors. Uh, that, in, in a nutshell, really, that tells an awful lot about the man and the times uh, as well. Uh, David, yes. to, yeah. to be honest, because they were di- very different times. And, and that's it took me back to when I was starting to get interested in, in, in motorsport. I was still quite young in those days. But reading that reminded me why I, I got interested in, in motorsport. I'll tell you somebody, somebody in... Okay, it's it's about Jochen Rint. His anniversary of his death is, is coming up in, in early September. Someone who I really enjoyed reading about in in the book was Helmut Marko and I found out a lot oh, about Helmut Marko in this book that, that you know this in some ways almost a shot of shadowy character who works on the the outskirts of Formula One and racing and management and all of that and and people may have made their own minds up about him inextricably linked nowadays of course with with Red Bull and it was Matashes and, and all of that sort of thing Austrian to his core. I thought I thought that was very interesting. What I found out about that he came over as a real character, which I kind of wasn't expecting. Tell you what, I'll tell you what, I love Helmut. And for those that don't know, I mean, he and Jochen were were buddies at school. They both got kicked out of school together. They used to do illicit town to town racing, where you know people say Helmut's a tough boss, and why doesn't he ever look after drivers? When he and Jochen were racing on the road together, if you went off, tough tough luck, you know, you were on your own. Your mates weren't going to help you. And Helmut, Helmut used to have a stair puck, which is like a little Fiat 500-y type thing, when I think Jochen had his Simca. So he was outpowered, um, but then he borrowed his dad's Chevrolet. I say borrowed, he nicked it at night, I think. And the deal was he could only overtake in corners because he had such a straight line advantage. That's right. He was overtaken on a corner and a truck came. So he had to sort of go off the road to avoid it and ended up with this thing sliding down a, an embankment. And all his mates just laughed and you know it was up to Helmut to, to fix it and sort it out. But what a lot of people don't know is Helmut would have been a fantastic Grand Prix, was a fantastic Grand Prix driver. And the first time he got in a proper BRM, a P160 in 72 in the French Grand Prix at Claremont, he was chasing Ronnie and Emerson for sixth place. And that tells you all you need to know. I mean, he was class. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people know that a stone got thrown up and blinded him in one eye, which stopped his career. But there's two really interesting things. One I found out when I talked to him for that, um, for the book, but also one I found out recently, number one is that they didn't have time to do a proper seat fitting in the BRM. So he was sitting a couple of inches too high. 
had they done the proper seat fitting, he would no. have been lower down on the stone and have glanced off the top of his helmet. And on such things, oh. careers rest. The other day, well, last year, I was interviewing him about Helmut Koenig, who was one of his protégés. And Jochen had been persuaded to do some hill climb in a Cayman Super V, along with Little Helmet. So Little Helmet says, no, Jochen, uh, Big Helmet says, I'm going to have that car, which is exactly the one that Little Helmet was hoping to get because he knew it was better. And Big Helmet wasn't stupid. He knew it was better too. So he, he gets that car and he wins the race. So I said, you must have been laughing and pretty happy. And he said, his typical sort of deadpan. He just said, yeah, I was very happy, especially when on my way home, I read the paper about the plane crash in Palermo, which had killed everyone on board and which is still the biggest civil aviation accident in Italian history, I think. And I sort of said, yeah, and it's because if I hadn't done that hill climb, I would have been on that plane because I've been testing for the Targa Florio. <laughs> you know, when someone tells you that, I said, Jeez, I've never read that. Yeah. I said, well, I never told anyone. Oh. So, you know, when people sort of tell you that Helmut Marco can't be as beastly as he is to the Pierre Gasly's and um, drivers like that, you just think, yes, he can. <laughs> he came from the hardest kind of school. Yeah. And he was as, as Jochen and he was, um, you know, you had Jochen, then you had Helmut, and then you had Nicky. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I could have seen Helmut Marco being a world champion. He was fast enough in two litre sports cars and he won Le Mans in 71. And he was looking really good in that BRM on a very challenging circuit. And he's had to deal with a lot of setbacks in his own life where he just had to man up and get on with it. So, yeah. That is one of the things I love about this book is that, yes, of course, Jochen is the centrepiece, but it's about what was orbiting around Jochen and, and, the context in which it is all placed by Jochen and and his and his orbit of friends. Were you tempted, David, to to re-examine for this new edition ten years on? There's there's been no change to the text. Um, were you tempted to add to take out to any oh, other... really, I don't think there was anything, there's nothing I regretted being in there. I don't think there was a, an awful lot that I could have added at the time when we were doing the reprint. You know, it's funny because some writers, one in particular, who was a friend of mine, um, would sort of parcel out information on certain drivers in the form of three or four, even five books, just different sort of viewpoints and everything else. You know, when I do a book like that, I just tend to put every single thing in it that I know. And yeah, I mean, there wasn't anything I would change, that's for sure. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading it. The fact that um, the backdrop to my reading it was travelling across to Spa and, and reading it in stolen moments between sessions of, of motor racing only added to it. Uh, the book is Yacht and Rind, Uncrowned King of Formula One by David Tremaine. Uh, the uh, publishers are Evro. And if I may steal a little bit from the forward from Jackie Stewart, Sir Jackie Stewart, David Tremaine is a wonderful writer who has done Yacht and great justice in the words he's chosen to depict a remarkable man and a remarkable career. Stands up really well, David. Thanks for joining us. 
It is amazing what you can get somebody to say when you're holding them at gunpoint. I know that's not true. David, thank you for joining <laughs> us on Midweek Motorsport. Always uh, thank a pleasure. You. It's, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Always great to hear from David Tremaine. And what a fabulous book. Can't believe, Nick Damon, um, that first of all, it's 10 years since uh, DT wrote that book. And secondly, it's all that time, 1970, since Jochen Rint was killed at Monza. Always great to hear DT as well. Yeah, obviously, Jochen, I obviously didn't know Jochen, but I, I knew Natasha really well, his daughter, because mm. we worked together in Formula One uh, when, we, when she was... She, she started off working in the production side and eventually ended up being, being the pilot for Bernier. Um, amazing girl, and, and just in the right light, looked just like him. It was amazing. Mm. She really was a female version of Jochen, but um, and she was a lovely woman, so I'm pretty much assuming that he was a lovely bloke. Yeah, uh, an enigma for, for some people. Uh, let's head into Formula One. Shea Adam is, I hope, still with us and was listening intently yes. uh, through that as well. Good, that's good. Uh, your team by team, uh, Nick, first of all. Hang on, for the... now, hold on, hold on. Have a go, we have a go at Tim for this. I know it's been a difficult day, but let's do this properly. All right, sorry. Uh, let's move on now to Formula One, for which we name, need Nick Damon, our Formula One correspondent. Hooray! That's excellent stuff. Uh, excellent stuff. Some thoughts, first of all, generally, before we get into team by team. Ten teams today have all signed up to the Concord Agreement. Yeah, that's really quite interesting, isn't it? Because even, what, uh, two weeks ago, Toto Wolff, who appeared to be having just one of those weekends, didn't he, in uh, Silverstone, he was unhappy with everything uh, for the 70th Grand Prix. He didn't like the fact, didn't like anyone, didn't want to, didn't want to be a, a team manager anymore. Um, you know, it wasn't fair. It, they could take his ball away. Mercedes hated um, uh, Liberty. And then suddenly, um, less than 40, in fact, I'd say 10 days later, uh, they've all signed up. So once again, the exact details of the Concord Agreement are a secret, but the overarching concept is that um, we basically have all 10 teams signed up, which is key because they have made a fairly legally binding agreement for the teams to stay to 2025. Three key points about that. Renault have committed, which is interesting. Yes. Mercedes have committed, which will reduce the ridiculous amount of clickbait we get during during quiet weeks. And Haas have committed. Mm. They were the three wobbles. Um, Renault, I think, the biggest wobble. But, but obviously, you know, we, they obviously can still leave if they want to. But it would be a massive, um, you know, face loser, and there could be potentially um, legal repercussions they wouldn't get involved in. So the fact is, all ten teams have decided they want to they want to stay, um, based on the fact obviously they know how much they're going to spend next year. It's not going to be as expensive this year because it's effectively a, a frozen season and they're bringing the, and they're bringing the cap in and it's moving forward so you know they, they they probably worked out it's worth seeing worth seeing how it goes the next five years job but yeah i mean there is it is said that that theoretically symbolic veto that ferrari has is still there and they haven't used it it has to be said and they and they want to have it um is still there, but there is a much more even distribution of prize money. Um, I think they are actually now apparently giving a little bit of cash back to the engine manufacturers, which does seem fair, really, because they put a huge amount of money in mm-hmm. and are particularly and they are as important as the team. I know they are teams as well, actually, Pop and Honda, but they but they are putting money in in for that fact. So I think that's quite useful. The proof of the pudding really is is in is in 2024. We've had the new regulations for two years, had a budget cap for three years. What is the state of F1 and will they be able to have a, perhaps a slightly less expensive while still manufacture attractive engine concept and hopefully 50, 50 to 80 kilograms lighter as well? Uh, 
Shay Adam is with us as well. Before we get into the, the fast track team by tra- team, I want to bring something else up. Um, the first team we're going to talk about is Ferrari because Ferrari are last as far as the results because Charles Leclerc was mm. listed as a DNF, only having completed uh, 40 laps. Charles Leclerc was a very naughty boy, Shay. Yes, it appears that he drove uh, at least a couple of laps without his seatbelts being fastened. Um, It's sort of a strange situation out on track where perhaps he thought that he was going to be done, that he was going to be getting out of the car. Maybe he unbuckled his belts. And then when the team reminded him how to get the car fired up again and bring it back to the pit lane, he might have only done one or two belts and then completely forgotten about the rest. And that's something that would quickly remind you that they were undone as soon as he lift off the throttle in those cars. Um, so as he came back into the pit lane and they ultimately did retire the car, there was a flurry of mechanics around the cockpit, which is something you don't often see in Formula One. So I'm wondering what the uh, ramifications from that are going to be. There is no wiggle room um, in the regulations, although there might have been in the cockpit, Nick, uh, with yeah. him not having his lap belts uh, fastened yeah. fastened up. Uh, it, it is uh, it is absolutely a no no. I think Shears, uh, I think Shears. Uh, um, take on the situation was pretty good. If you remember, he came into, dear listener, he came into the final corner, uh, the engine cut out, locked the rear wheels, and he spun onto the kerb. Now, that normally, with no onboard starter on a Formula One car, Nick, that would have been it. But, of course, with the hybrid, he can do the old Toyota Gazoo racing thing, get it moving on the hybrid, and then bump start it. It's not, that's actually happened several times, but no one's kind of noticed that the you know, cars don't fall off and stop now unless they have a major problem. The, the, the anti-stall isn't an issue because they don't worry. Because they, they will just start the car back up again on the on the electric power. And that, that's happened on several occasions. So when a car, you know, we don't see cars spin, stop, stall, not start again mm. unless they've done that for a you know, hydraulic failure, gearbox failure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... Yeah, it was it was interesting because he he, he 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 had pinged the center the center clip, hadn't he? And he'd lost the lap belt, and then he'd had one last go at getting the thing to start again. And in typical Italian electron electrics, they'd start, didn't they? You know, if ever that was a nineteen seventies Italian car, that was it. Oh, doesn't start, doesn't start. Don't get it. Oh, it's starting now. And and then he's he's gone round for a lap and a half, which was you know, a little bit silly. Um, well, there's not there's not enough room. I'm surprised, even if even if he'd done all of his undone all of his belts by hitting the release, which is likely what happened. He had half a chance of getting the shoulder straps down. You can do that yourself in a single seater. What you can't do, and you can't certainly do in a Formula One car, if the lap belts have popped out, you're not going to be able to pull the lap belts tight enough to get them in, and you haven't got enough room to slacken them off yourself. And and then tighten, fasten them, and then tighten them up. For me, I'm almost certain it would have been the lap belts, Nick. Yeah, yeah. I think he pressed the centre, but the, the centre buckle thing, and it went ping. And, I, and yeah, he shouldn't have done two laps. He was a bit silly. And he's just silly, sillier still to actually say he'd done it. It's one of those things where I sometimes just don't mention it. You know, you, you retired the car. Yeah, you know, they came in and fiddled with the lap belts. Everyone, everyone knows what happened because all you've really done because he did, it wasn't anything like full speed those two laps, but still not safe. So. Someone needs to have a little quiet word. I'm not saying get a fine or anything, but have a quiet word. Do you think he might get points on his license? No, I, I don't think so. I think it's retrospective. I think they just that that is the ultimate requirement for just a reprimand. That's all that needs. Okay. Just don't do it again. 
and everyone else don't do it again it's silly and the only person who actually put it at risk is yourself well that's true mm-hmm. that's true and particularly as we were talking about uh, Jock and Rint uh, earlier on and if you think of the circumstances of Jochen's death at Monza doesn't bear thinking about does it really alright Nick quick fire let's go through the teams yeah. in your team by team guide we start with Scuderia Ferrari because Charles as I say was last yeah, well, Charles, you know, this was not a good race for Ferrari because they we finally saw where their true qualifying pace was, and the answer was nowhere. Ninth and eleventh, uh, Fettel missing um, section three by ooh, uh, nothing. Uh, got a choice of tyres, chose to go on the mediums. We'll come back to that later because basically that's what Ferrari they forgot about him for about forty-five laps. Uh, Charles was going quite well. Um, I think he's up to fifth when he finally um, fell off, but actually didn't. It didn't fall. He, he was forced off by an engine issue. Um, and then at that point, they suddenly remember they had a second car, uh, and that was Sebastian Vettel who'd been trundling around on the soft tyres because um, he started on the mediums. The soft tyres, which weren't supposed to be good for very much. Can I just pre see what went on there? Hello. Hello, is it me you're looking for? I'm driving around. Hello, is it me? It's not. It's not Lionel Richie. It's Sebastian Vettel, and I'm. I'm in the race here, and I'm still on me starting tyres. What do you want me to do with these? Well, Silence. Ha- Silence. Wait. Yeah. Silence. Can you make these go to the end? That's what I was asking you for about ten laps ago. Why yeah. didn't you tell me? And then. From his grumpiness, and I'm going to give him a massive amount of kudos here, he then turned back and said, well, you know what, I'll give it a go. Uh, what, what have we got to lose? And he'd sort of taken a deep breath. I thought that showed incredible maturity for Vettel. Shock horror, sit down people who's listening. Because he had clearly, as you rightly say, just been totally forgotten about. I know, it's, it's, it's just... Um... I just don't understand this. Well, you know, I've just told, we spoke about Andrea Dovizioso and Ducati, and now we've gone, what, 60 kilometres up the road uh, from Bologna to uh, Maranello, and it's this same inability to manage people. Um, and you look at the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're a little bit off the tee by tee, but, let, but let's look at the management structure of Ducati, the management structure of Ferrari now, compared to the massively successful time that Ferrari had. And you know, not wishing to make an obvious point, but when the Northern Europeans were in charge, things went a lot better than when the Southern Europeans were in charge. I think it's more than that. And, and, yeah. and here's another shock. I'm going to agree with something that Colin Collis said over the weekend. Matteo Benotto is a very good engineer. Collis worked with them at Spiker uh, and a number of other places. I think at, at Minardi as well, if I'm not... Um, mistaken when Collis was was involved there on the outskirts what he's not is a man manager and you absolutely have to be a man manager at at the Scuderia Mm, yeah it's 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 I it's it's the fact I can't find my words is is exactly how I feel about the whole thing well let's move on then unbelievable that you can forget you have two drivers in a row here's here's a question here's a question so I actually said, even I were talking about this uh, over the weekend, watched all of it at, at various stages, and, and actually, I, I quite enjoyed, and it was a bit of a, I know the Grand Prix was a bit of a snow fest in, in certain respects, but I actually enjoyed the whole event again, and watching every session is a, is a real um, treat for me. All right, I'm going to ask you a question, because I think you might... All right. You might... Well, sorry, let, just let me make my point first, because you know I'm old, and otherwise I'll forget. I, I actually got the feeling that... 
and I'm sure this isn't the case, but you could make a case, let me put it that way, you could make a case for saying, could you not, the Ferrari are trying to get Vettel to quit halfway through the season and get, I don't know, Hulkenberg in. They're not, they're not going to get signs from McLaren, but they could maybe get the Hulk in or, or somebody else. It really does look like they're trying to make him quit. I think that's not the case. I think they're trying to prove the decision was right. Ah, that's a very now that's a very very subtle distinction, but I like what you're saying. Sorry, what were you going to ask me then? I was going to ask you because you saw every session as as oddly I saw most sessions too. And I, you may uh, yeah you, you may not want to answer this, but um, what on earth was David Croft on this weekend? It uh, was embarrassing. Well, in his conversations that, with, that... with Nico Rosberg and everything else, uh, and and I'm sitting there going. What? I mean, I, I don't like to criticise other people who do similar jobs to watch we do. And many times, I've defended him on many occasions, but I was actually physically embarrassed by his performance. I thought Rosberg, I'm going to not answer that for obvious reasons, because um, I've worked with Crofty before and I get on with him really well. And, and I don't think it's fair. I've, I've always thought that when you do a live commentary, you're subject to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and all sorts of other things going on, as we found in this live show uh, this evening. Um, I, thought, I thought Nico Rosberg was sparkling. I thought his insights were extraordinary. And even for somebody like me who's inside the business, the, some of the things that he said made me go, oh, of course, that you are so... Shade, do you, do you get the Sky commentary in the States as well? Um, we do. I didn't listen to all of it though. I have to say I got to one point in the race where I was more interested in making breakfast because the race had gotten a little bit dull. Yeah. If you get the chance, (laughs) if you get the chance and some of the early sessions are there for you to download, um, have a, have a listen to them because Rosberg was outstanding. He was in for the whole of FP3, I think. Yeah, um, three, three was when I was thinking about particularly. And he was friends. outstanding. Rosberg mm. was absolutely insightful, gave a kind of technical insight that I've not heard a driver in Formula One talk about probably ever, and, uh, and certainly um, right up there with some of the best endurance racing drivers who've gone behind the mic. I, I thought he was sparkling in everything he said. And I also, I was expecting him, because you know what drivers are like, Nick, I was expecting him to be a bit still, well, I've got an axe to grind here, there and everywhere. He was fulsome in his praise for certain drivers that I didn't expect him to, to be fulsome in his praise for and certain teams. Uh, when they had done right, he criticised people when they, they, they'd done wrong. I, I thought he was... I thought it was it was mega. Anyway, let's ra- let's rattle through. Um, Sorry, yeah. Yes, no, no, don't we've worry. We've got one team in so far. Yeah. <laughs> so so much for the quick fire. Still, you know, it's been yeah. one of those days. Um, Roman Grosjean was nineteenth. That means Haas F one team is next on the list. Yes. Uh, really, yeah, just very poor. I mean, apart from Roman Grosjean, had a ridiculously good Friday. Qualified fifth. Didn't know why. And then rebuilt the car, so it was rubbish. Um, he then had a, another jinky, jinky moment, which, which upset another driver. Half span the car, saved it beautifully, but that's not the point. Saving it beautifully isn't the point. He's not supposed to get away from the first place. Um, Kevin Magnussen, I'll be absolutely honest with you, I don't even remember seeing him, but I assume he was in one of the trains towards the back. But yeah, has, yeah they, they need to change something, and that something is um, a driver and a car. Um, right, okay, what are you doing with your mic, Nick Damon? I don't know. Uh, Williams were together. Uh, 18th Latifi, 
George Russell in 17th, a lap between them. Yeah, George said this was his, one of his best races ever. And I think it's indicative of the fact we never see any of his races that we wouldn't know one way or the other. Apparently, he actually overtook two or three cars on pace um, you know, during the ins and outs. Stop of the giggling, Shear. Um, <laughs> so he ended, I think, I think he, was, he was 16th at the end and he was very chuffed with it. And this is, the, the, this is, is a problem, though, really. And this is, a, this is an issue moving forward. Is if George Russell is the heir apparent to the Mercedes empire currently being squandered by Valtteri Bottas. Um, if he, you know, unless Williams improve next year, he's still going to be a completely untested person at the front mm. end of the grid. All we'll know is he's significantly faster than a very injured Robert Kubica and a always journeyman Nicholas Latifi. So, you know, what do, you, what, what do we know? And, that, and that's the problem that Mercedes have or will have um, coming at the end of or halfway through this time next year when we're most of the way through the season and, and they had to decide whether Renew Bottas' contract again and uh, Russell is, is running out in... Uh, um, Williams, because let's be honest, but Ocon's hardly, hardly lit the, the, the skies up at Renault, has he? No, true, true. Uh, unfortunately, because we had high hopes, certainly at the start of the season, we had high hopes for him. Uh, 16th and 14th, Giovinazzi, or Giovinazzi and Kimi Raikkonen for Alfa Romeo Racing. Well, Kimi decided to, to mark the uh, race weekend where he became the most mileage racing driver in F1 ever. Um, which which was a stat that they kept repeating. Twice uh, yeah. round, more than twice round the circumference that the Earth measured at the equator. Yeah, by actually not phoning in his performance this weekend and qualifying really well, getting out of Q1 with a terrible car, racing really well, getting up as close as he could to points and kind of putting in a, a sort of a, a 10 out of 10 performance. I mean, you kind of wondered whether there was a contract negotiation going on at the same time. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, a bit, if there'd been a little bit of attrition, he'd been in the points. No doubt. I, I, it's one of the weekends that frustrates me massively. It's why I get frustrated so much about Raikkonen. I, I think Formula One will be a less of an interesting place if he's not there. And, you know, regardless of all the um, shoehorned in, leave me alone, I know what I'm doing, um, comments over the weekend. Um, I just wish he would do that sort of thing. He clearly was outperforming the car at the weekend, Nick. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's certainly, and he's been um, kind of trading blows with Giovinazzi over the first few races, which is obviously well below his standard. Giovinazzi, really, honestly, um, Ferrari need to find someone else to go there. And I don't think he's Mick Schumacher. It's looking more and more like it would be Callum Eilop with the performances. Schumacher can't keep the uh, car on the track or the tyres under the car, Mick Schumacher. Yeah. That is, I mean, which is a basic issue. For he's a, got a great name and that's about it. And, and they can't do what they would have done in the past, which is give him ooh, ooh. 10 billion miles of, of, of practising, of, of, yeah, of testing. And so, whilst you've mentioned Schumacher now, that means I can say, and his cousin has split with his team. Did you notice? Uh-huh. Yeah, David has uh, always always thought it was a really weird thing that Ralph named his son after David Coulthard. Um but uh, it's not a story entirely. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So he, he had a difficult season um, with Sharoos, and I think I believe because all the other drivers have a difficult season with Sharoos, uh, they've decided it was Sharoos' fault, not the drivers. They've disappeared, saved some money, and they'll, I'm sure, come back trying to find a better team next year. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport. It's Series 15, Episode 33. Bit of a different uh, look, sound, and feel to the show tonight. But we're plugging on uh, regardless here, uh, and it's uh, team by team sort of uh, with Nick as we're going through the Formula 1 from the uh, weekend share Adam is with us as well 13th position for Esteban Ocon and 11th for Daniel Ricciardo for the Renault F1 team I, I thought Ricciardo possibly could have done better I'm not sure they got their tactics right this weekend at Renault 
No, the car was just not, it's just not a car for that particular set of circumstances. Okay. It began to look a bit better at Silverstone. They could pull the downforce off, maximum downforce, stuck in the middle of the pack. Nothing special about it. And yeah, the biggest problem, of course, was the new big boss of, uh, of Renault turned up. and was um, That was the whole company, not Renault Sport, yeah. Yeah, massively underwhelmed. But you know, they have signed the Concord Agreement, so they're in for another five years of underwhelming this. But you know, you know the problem they had is that they are, they're in the midfield, which they shouldn't be in. Um, you know, they are at the back of the midfield and sometimes in the middle of the midfield, but they're never at the front of the midfield, which is hence the reason they keep moaning about the, um, the racing points because they are at the front of the midfield. And they feel it's not fair because they've copied. I'm not even going down that one. At 12th position and 9th position for Kvyat and Gasly, that's Scuderia Alfa Tauri. They've established themselves as the team which will pick up the scraps at the back of the points, haven't they, really? They, they're both, um, obviously Gasly is outperforming Kvyat, not by a country mile, but it's looking more and more like that uh, Honda are pushing very hard for Yuki Tsunoda, who's doing okay in Formula 2 to so get a run next year in the uh, AlphaTauri, given the fact that they've been supporting AlphaTauri for three years and F- Red Bull for two, so they'll be four and three by next year, so seven racing years, and they haven't had one of their projects in the car yet, you kind of feel it might be an argument be hard to uh, to resist. Uh, Pierre Gasly, ninth position share. Adam, which made you happy? I don't know what it is about him. I just really like the guy. Uh, he seems to have such a, a bubbly personality, and I really enjoy seeing when he does well, and particularly I really like seeing when he out-qualifies Alex Albon. I don't know what's wrong with my little sadistic brain in that sense. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, he wasn't bubbly this time last year. And, no. Um, Alex Albon's not bubbly this time this year. Now, I'm not going to get... Let, I, I mean, no one needs to put the reason for those two things together because <laughs> it's... It all comes out in the Red Bull uh, team by team. But, you know, they are... They, it's a very difficult situation to be in. When you're freed from it, he's come back and he's doing what he was doing before. Problem is, there's no obvious promotion now because you just go back into the same unpleasant situation that he would be in with, with, uh, with Red Bull. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's uh, move on then from uh, Alpha Tauri to 10th place for uh, Lando Norris. Uh, has his bubble finally burst? And Carlos Sainz in 6th, McLaren F1 team. Nick? Yeah, Sainz has finally solved the overheating issue with his car by changing the engine. The changing engine. everything, didn't he? He got, an, he well, got a new chassis, engine, new engine, new yeah. EGR, MGU, PDK, and everything. Yeah, the whole lot, yeah. <laughs> yes, TLC, the whole lot, yes. And that, that game Lots of three-letter acronyms were changed at the weekend. And, and he's always been very good in his home Grand Prix. Uh, Norris qualified okay, didn't have a particularly good first lap. And then you're in a, you're in a chain of cars. And when you're a trainer, cars remember where it's hard to overtake in Barcelona, and everyone's got DRS, no one overtakes. So um, yeah, it wasn't a great race for for uh, Norris. We picked up points, and it was a, a better race for Sainz. But you know, they they know they are not fast at every track, and you know, I think I think Norris is doing a good job in his second season. I think we've been, we've kind of forgotten how racing drivers normally progress because we've been blinded by Lewis what ten years ago and Max five years ago. Yeah, uh, and I, I like to see Carlos doing well. It's a shame he couldn't have had his own grandstand, which he normally uh, does at uh, Barcelona. Um, and good to see McLaren continuing their improvements uh, as well. Uh, let's uh, move into the rest of the top 10. Next team, we're going to talk about Alexander Albon down in eighth position on a very odd 
tyre strategy, particularly when I saw them put a brand new set of mediums on at the end. I literally screamed at the television at that point. Max Verstappen came in a uh, better part of half a minute away from Lewis in second. So that's Aston Martin Red Bull Racing. Yeah. Um, no one else in the race used the hard tyres. Everyone on Friday, the hard tyres were awful. Max Verstappen was stuck behind Lewis Hamilton and not able to get past him with, with the traditional strategy. Now, if an alternate strategy was going to work, then, you know, possibly a one-stop by using the hard tyres, because obviously they had a lot more running. Perhaps the hard tyres are working now with rubber. Now, how would they find out whether that was going to work or not? Mm, I know. Why don't we use our other driver who we don't really care about and bring him in, stick him on the on the hard tyres, and put him into terrible traffic? So it certainly wasn't tactical, despite what Alan going, oh, my tyres are a bit... No, they weren't. You know, playing the company game. And just see if the tyres work. And when they don't, not care because Max is still where he is. Um, you know, we now have two of the top three teams who are effectively one car team because they don't care about the other driver. Um, and it doesn't matter what... Horner says it's it's you know it is such a one-man team that it is the, the ultimate poison chalice now is to be Max Verstappen's teammate because what can you do even when you, you have a reasonable qualifying and you're doing reasonably well obviously not as well as him which is fair enough he's you know, younger you then get sabotaged by your own team and attempt to find out if something else might work better for Max and they, they, obviously they deny it to the cows come home but you know it's pretty obvious for all to see there was as you pointed out John there was no point because Pirelli said the theoretical fastest way of doing it was soft, medium, soft. So they could have done that. They didn't have to, if you said brand new set of mediums, then and they could put on softs at the end and that would have been fine. And most, we, had, yeah, we had all sorts of people doing more aggressive strategies than that, but they decided to put it on hard because there's an outside chance it might have worked in Max's favour. And um, talking about Max, he came second. Well done, Max. Uh, he came second. I, I, what did you make of him... Um, slapping his engineer down a bit, let you know, uh, he, he had Kimmy's t-shirt at the weekend, well, really, didn't he? Like, you know, yeah, he, I think this is the interesting thing. Obviously, I said before, he, he's he's driving with no pressure normally, and he can do his funny grandma comments and everything else. There was a tiny bit of pressure this week because suddenly everyone was expecting him to win, weren't they? And Mercedes said they thought that the Red Bull were the favourites. Everyone was going, "We're oh, so hot, we're going to win," and suddenly he had a little bit of pressure about things. And perhaps he thought he was going to win. And then when he found he wasn't going to win, he got a bit testy. So yeah, just bear that in mind when he's actually racing for a world championship to see how that 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 you know stacks up. I mean, it didn't cost him any time. Um, yeah, you know, it wasn't a great performance. It wasn't sorry, it wasn't a, it wasn't a poor performance in any way whatsoever. But it was you know he did what he needed to do. He did his job in the first corner, and that was it. Hmm. Uh, Sergio Perez in fifth after a blue flag penalty, which. Listen, if you didn't hear Lewis complaining about it, it must have been marginal. But all right, you know, maybe he did go th- past three blue flags, blue lights. Well, apparently, uh, um, whilst they showed a very bad replay, he'd been getting blue flags from turn six. Ah, OK. Well, so, that was half a lap then. More I than think half a lap. The thing is, it's probably the speed, the speed differential, you get it from two seconds away. Lewis is not, you know, when he's he's probably yeah, he's not massively quicker than the Pink Panther at that particular time in its various offset tyre strategies, you know, second second half, and and probably he wasn't that bothered about doing an easy overtake down the main straight because otherwise you have to try and dive bomb at turn nine, turn ten, and then you got a, a, a you know, complex of corners which Perez didn't let him through. 
So by the letter of law, he was wrong. And apparently there's been a request to clamp down it by the team. So hence he and Kvyat got a ticking off. Uh, Lance Stroll then inherited for position. Hmm? Yeah, great start from Lance. It um, was very aggressive. A uh, little bit of a... A uh, little bit of a touch, wasn't there, early on? It, it, you know, I don't know about Lance. I really don't. Uh, I, I rate Perez, and as you've said many times, you can only judge against your teammate. Um, Stroll was there. At, um, you know, he may well have still been able to um, overhaul Sergio anyway, even if it hadn't been for the penalty. Um, I, I just don't know with Stroll. He's he's looked better with a car that is comfortably able to make it to um, P, uh, qualifying sector three. He's always had issues qualifying, and he's underqualified the car because he's overdriven it. Because the car can now make Q three um, because it's fast, he's he's managed to make Q three and then you know had done pretty much what you expect there or thereabouts to place either way. He's not had these big drop offs, so I think that's helped his psyche knowing that he's not trying to hustle the car into an area it's not supposed to be. He's always been a very good, I've always said he's a good starter, he's a good racer, and I, and I don't change any of that. I think he's been a little bit conservative, um, and perhaps he now needs to get a little bit more aggressive. Share uh, Adam, uh, Stroll is one of those drivers who gets out of the car what's in the car. Um, he's been good, good sometimes, but never great. He has been good in cars that are great, but he's never been great in a car that's good. He's sort of the opposite of Fernando Alonso. And Ooh, I base I like this that. on his um, his earlier career when he was in the single seaters coming up through the ranks. When he was with the best team, he was able to bring results. But when he wasn't with the best team, he was sort of mid-pack to back of the field. When Williams was on the high, he got a podium. When they started to slow down, he was consistently qualifying on the last row. Um, And even looking at what he's done in sports cars, when he came over and raced with Chip Ganassi Racing at Daytona, he was with Alex Wirtz, Andy Priu, and Brendan Hartley. And he was definitely the driver in the car that we talked about the least. But when he was in the car, we were still talking about the car because he was in a machine that was capable of winning the race. Yeah, Okay. That leaves us, of course, with... Uh, Mercedes AMG, uh, Valtteri Bottas in third, and Lewis Hamilton in a different zone. He was. He was. He, he was. He was in a, but, but can I first of all say that? Do you remember my? And I'm not saying that to be facetious, by the way. He said that, and I thought that was very interesting. Anyway, carry on. Sorry. What did I say in my preview last week? Last week, uh, this whole rubbishy talk about them being in terrible trouble was just more gumps. And barring and crashing into each other, they finished first and second. Well, I forgot the barring Valtteri cocking up the start again part of it. So, um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I sat there and you sit there going, all right, I understand why you're bringing the hype, but please use your intelligence. Yeah. And nothing about that surprised me. So, you know, and it was a great performance. Lewis, did, you know, Lewis put in an absolutely flawless performance. Yeah, you know, he, he had the fastest car. He is the fastest driver, whatever Christian Horner says. And he did what the fastest car and the fastest driver would do, which is win with ease going away. Mm. Um, yeah, he got himself a pit stop in the end, which is which is a, a safe a safe uh, margin. Yeah, he did miss missed out on the Grand Slam, as they call it, which is. Um, pole fastest lap and led all the laps because they let Valtteri have a go on the soft tyres and make up for him being upset 
And he now sits, what, 37 points ahead of Verstappen, 43 points ahead of, of Bottas, and pretty much now, you know, unstoppable, unless he meets the wrong sort of personal chef, as uh, Sergio Perez did. And that's the only thing that's going to stop Lewis now. Um, what do we think about uh, this idea that, oh, you can't have your party modes and Zone 7 um, mm. and all of this? Surely... This is a bit like, for me, this is teams uh, being rather like turkeys voting for Christmas. Surely, Mercedes-Benz <laughs> have got the best engine. They've got the most power. Therefore, if you can only have one power setting, you'll set it relatively sensibly. And Mercedes is going to be way better than anybody else's, Nick. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it smacks of trying to um, falsely level the playing field because the whole point about a turbocharged engine is gives you this flexibility to turn it up and turn it down. And that's been the same since 1983 or even sorry, before that with the Renaults in 77. So that was one of the great things about turbos. And it's one of the fun things about them that suddenly you, know, you can decide to really eke out the engine. And we saw it, for example, with Lando Norris using maximum attack in the last lap to get within the five seconds of Lewis Hamilton in the first race in Austria. So it has advantages to it that add to the show. Um, I personally quite like seeing the cars absolutely going full blazing guns for it on the uh, on Saturday afternoon. But I totally believe that Mercedes engineering um, is just going to take away, all right, we can't have Super, super Mario mode or Super Party mode, so our standard mode is going to be slightly better. So we have slightly more power. And... You know, it, it's it's a it's a strange situation because one thing I will say is that it's not the right year to take the party modes away because even the party modes away they'll be they'll just be half a second ahead instead of seven tenths. You know, it, but I don't agree with that, and I know you don't because Formula One, um, we we don't do we really need to have a balance of performance in Formula yeah. One? You don't ask, Shea Adam, the. New York Yankees to go out um, <laughs> two players short because they're playing a team that's not very good. You don't ask uh, uh, Manchester United or Liverpool to play with nine men in a soccer match because they're playing against you know my club, Sunderland, who are going to be pretty rubbish. That's not how these things work. No, there there isn't a handicap like that in the top level of sports. And the only solution is to go away, do your homework, figure out what you've done, not necessarily wrong, but not as well as what the other people have done, and come back with a better team or a, a better whatever it is that you need to get that winning formula. Um, so they definitely shouldn't be punished for being the best. That That's not fair. It's just up to everyone else to sort of bring it back into the same ballpark. And I, I think with this new um, Concord agreement that they've just signed, it's the first step towards making everybody a little bit more even. But it, it isn't fair to punish a team for getting the formula right. I mean, the Patriots have won the Super Bowl way too many times for my Raiders liking. Um, but you still can't begrudge them. No. And you want to play the best version of the Patriots that you can if you're going to play against them to make your victory feel worthwhile. Uh, Shane mentioned the levelling of the of the playing field with the new Concord agreement. That's not necessarily in performance, um, but it is about spreading the spreading the money out more, Nick. And you know, as we all know, no matter what you say about cost caps or anything like that, if you've got the money, you'll spend it. The teams that have the most money will continue to spend the most money. They'll find ways of doing that. But an extra 
few million some of the teams in the midfield or at the back it's going to make actually quite a lot of difference to them isn't it well the extra few million is going to help and also the fact that they are not having to spend cubic uh, cubic dollars to keep up with the top guys so the top guys are working to a still a high number but a number that's closer to being achievable um, you know, for actually developing their car. On top of that, they do have the, uh, yeah, the ability to pay the most money for the drivers and top members of staff. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, theoretically, and it's not going to happen instantaneously, it's gonna, you know, 2022 is not going to be a panacea. I mean, it is possible it may not be Mercedes anymore just because they might get something wrong in the completely new design of the car. But it, you're still, unless there is a massive sea change in brilliance, the top three teams will still be the top three teams in 2022. It may well be in a different order. Mm. Because it's just the the R and D and the investment and everything else they have. Now the point is, the longer you keep any set of rules standard, um, the closer you get. Um, yeah, though of course true. that's been that's been disproven by the engine regulations because Ferrari decided not to play to the rules and then had to go right to the back of the class. Uh, but they so inspired Mercedes who go to the front of the class and now have you paid back. So you know it, to show you how good the Mercedes design was in the in the first place. Finish off with a bit of calendar news. Uh, no Tim uh, at the moment, but he does like a bit of calendar news. So this yeah. is for him at 17 Grand Prix potentially with well, with Turkey I, I, back. I not Constantinople though. No, but I can't, it was only a few weeks ago. I think what I say a few is probably before the season started, so it was eight weeks ago. We we talked about Turkey, and we were, and I'll be honest, I was very disparaging on two fronts. Front one, it hasn't got a Grade One license at the moment, and front mm. two, because I was under the impression it was being used as a car park, much like um, rocking it, rocking it, speedway. Mm. But actually, that second part I was completely wrong about. Apparently, uh, more than five years ago, it came under new management. Um, at the behest and with the blessing of um, the president, is it Erdogan? I don't yep. want to pronounce the name wrong. To attempt to try and find a way of getting the racing back. And I've, I've actually, a guy mailed me this week saying that every week they, they have a, sorry, every month they have a run what you brung day there. And he was on, he was on the track only last week. Um, and apparently all the higher cars and the, the storage is all in the car parks. And of course, with a behind closed doors event, which they're talking about being in November. No, no, they're, not. they're not. They're not. This is the point. It's not behind closed doors. Oh. They, they, are, they are desperately looking at getting some numbers at some of these back races. Now, the issue with Turkey, as far as I can understand, he's not grade one. And there's been a very kind of wafty hand. Oh, there's been no problem. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure about no. that. Because tracks degrade over um, eight or nine years. It's not. I think it's not had anything big for seven and it's been used as a car park for two and now it's been back and running again. And the weather, you know, Turkish weather, whilst nice, does have all the seasons. It has ice and snow sometimes, which erodes surfaces. And uh, the other thing that's happening, which I found out from MotoGP contacts, not from F1 contacts, which I didn't realise, um, is that, is that uh, Portugal... Uh, at the the Algarve is going to be completely resurfaced before F1 goes there in October or whenever it is. He's been bumpy, wasn't it? Uh, how? Well, I, I saw it the other week for uh, it would have been World Superbikes, wouldn't it? And there were a few cracks in it and things like things like that. It didn't look too bad for the bikes, but that, isn't that taking a massive risk? That could that could be a nightmare if it all goes wrong. Just, just don't use the people who did the first series surfacing at Silverstone, John. It was the second one they wanted to use. Um, yeah, the other thing about Estoril is they are looking at theoretically, and obviously this is a massive moving target in Europe, but if the race was happening tomorrow, they would be looking at having 60,000 people a day if they could sell oh. tickets in there. Where, in uh, Turkey? 
No, 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 in, in Portugal. No way. Portuguese regulations no, at the no, moment. I know, no, it's, no, I know no. it's coming and going, no. but that's what they're looking at. No, and I'll tell you why, no. I'll tell you no, why, I'm no. Not, this is, I, I don't disagree with you. No, 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 no. It's got nothing to do with the current situation. You've been to um, oh yeah yeah you've been to that track uh, recently at the circuit of the Algarve and I have as relatively recently I can't imagine it's any difference there isn't anywhere to put anybody other than the main grandstand because there's foliage there's trees the bleachers around the back are question mark safe to have anybody in and at the very least you'd have to go in and take all of all of the flora out of it not a chance. Not no, you're right. It, the, the grandstands, yeah, certainly going round fifteen. They're all tree based. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, but I'm sure you know that they they. It really depends whether they are obviously unattractive. Are they structurally unsound? Well, that's that's, that's the, the key. Point. Yeah. Let's finish. Um, let's let's finish off um, with a little bit of WEC news whilst we've got you both uh, and John. De Geese uh, picking up an interview with Gerard Navour saying there's probably only going to be six WEC races in 2021, share, including the 24 hours of uh, Le Monde. Uh, oh, and by the way, Le Castellet 240. Johnny and I were in the meeting where that was decided. And I'm not saying which one of Johnny and I suggested that in the first place, but it wasn't Johnny. So, you know, <laughs> uh, um, uh, six, I'm very, uh, Luc Castellier, uh, de, de Saint, uh, Caron is, I think, what I said in that meeting. Uh, and uh, six races for WEC projected in 2020, possibly starting at Seabring, possibly. Uh, but at the moment, Gerard, any series head, uh, I mean, the, the, it's like pushing water uphill at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. It's a it's a fluid situation. That's a perfect analogy, John. Um, I, I compare that to the IMSA calendar, which normally we would have received at the Road America weekend. Good we point. still don't know what the 2021 calendar holds. Um, six races for a world championship. I like it. Um, that's taking into account the fact that everybody's been dealing with some financial strain through this situation. We don't know what the travel will be like for next year. We don't know anything. For next year so being able to come out and say look it's better than nothing and mm. i really uh, applaud wec for putting that together and getting it out we were hoping to have a little bit of uh, Le Mans news uh, with regard to Radio Show Limited. We'll hold that over till next week. Uh, also, hopefully, some news uh, about how the race is being staged uh, itself as as well. And we'll get that in next week's show. It's VIR this weekend. Everything is there from IMSA. We went through the headlines on the entry list last week. Any major changes here that we need to squeeze in before I mention Alarma? Um, it will be Madison Snow driving on his own in the Lamborghini Super Trofeo series. And Tom Kerr is also making the switch from the Porsche series, the GT3 Cup, uh, the vascular surgeon from Tampa. He's been driving Porsches for quite some time. He's going to make his Lamborghini debut, as well as a new team also coming in with ANSA. They bring two cars to the party. So Lamborghini is going to be fun to watch. Um, as far as Porsche is concerned, Brian Henderson making his series debut and Kenny Marillo actually joining the championship for a full season, having won basically a scholarship by David Baker and uh, Apex and that whole organization. So GT3 Cup should be fun and entertaining as well. 
Thank you, Cher. Thank you to Nick. Uh, apologies again for our technical issues. Uh, and thank you to Tim for trying to get those sorted out. Hopefully all back to normal as quickly as possible. Keep an eye out and an ear out. Cher's going to stay on now and join me and Jeremy as we have a look at the 104th running of the Indianapolis 500, which is this weekend uh, back home in Indiana. We've got IMSA on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And we've also got a virtual Creventic race at the weekend in Sound and Vision. Check the website for details. No time to explain. Uh, the Llama is going to be told not to chew cables anymore. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.